If you have your Bibles, I do invite you um, to turn with me. I'm going to be reading from 1 Corinthians. Um, I'm actually going to start in verse 25. Um, I was thinking um, in terms of our officer elections, um, uh, we're bringing new people onto our boards, and, and um, I, I wanted to come to this passage because sometimes when we're called to serve, it's, it can be scary. It, we can feel like um, uh, we're not up to the, the challenge of serving in the way that we feel like the Lord is perhaps placing on our hearts to serve. Um, we, we feel the call, but then we, <laughs> on a second consideration, we, we feel ourselves not up to the task. And so I wanted to just come to this passage. It's a passage that has been a source of encouragement to me, um, especially when I have felt just uh, way in over my head, inadequate for ministry. Um, and, and I remember... It, Feeling that call to ministry myself, um, and I was late elementary, and, and I remember just sitting in the church like this one, and um, sitting in the pew, um, looking up at the preacher, and I could feel this sense that, that this might be something the Lord wanted me to do. So that was, and it was kind of an exciting thought. But then the second thought came, and that was, I could never get in front of people <laughs> and talk like that. No way. And the truth is, I still get butterflies. I get nervous on, you know, Sunday morning rolls around. I'm like, oh, okay, um, Lord, I need your help. I, I need your, your strength. Well, whether it's preaching or teaching or a call to serve in a, in a Christian leadership position or simply take time to go over to a friend or to a neighbor just to let them know that you care about them when you have a sense that they're discouraged or they're struggling or maybe it's just uh, some other, um, some desire or sense that the Spirit is laying on our hearts to serve. And, and we think, no, I, what, what, what will I say? You know, I'm not the preacher who stands up in front and always seems to know what to say. Um, I'm just an ordinary person. How, um, how can I go out and minister in the way that I feel like maybe the Lord is calling me to minister? Well, this message um, this morning, I think, presents us with this critical truth, and it's an encouraging truth. And it's this, that God uses ordinary, weak, imperfect, flawed Christians to accomplish his purposes. Okay? Ordinary, weak, imperfect, flawed Christians to achieve his purposes, his kingdom purposes. Would you stand then for the reading of God's word? I'm in 1 Corinthians, and again, chapter 1, uh, verses 25 through 29. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful, not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, 
so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. Would you bow your heads with me? O Lord, grant us the gift of faith that we may meditate upon your word with profit. And as we go forth in faith, may we go in the confidence of your strong promises through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. You may be seated. The basic point of this passage from 1 Corinthians and a recurring theme um, through both 1 and 2 Corinthians is that God often chooses those who are ordinary, who are weak, at least in, in the view of the world, to accomplish his purposes. So the Apostle Paul has been, and it's really kind of genius what he's been doing um, both in this passage, but um, especially in the previous passage, where he's making this contrast between the foolishness of God and the wisdom of the world. Usually we think of, you know, this kind of, of competition between the wisdom of God versus the wisdom of the world. No, Paul is, is setting it in even starker terms. It's the foolishness of God versus the wisdom of the world. And in the previous passage, the apostle uses the example of the death of Christ on the cross as an example of what he means. No God in the Greek and Roman pantheon would ever consider enduring the humiliation and shame and the pain of death on a cross as some kind of strategy to achieving uh, victory and glory. The humiliation and death on a cross is considered shameful and foolish in the world's eyes. And so Paul brilliantly concludes that, in fact, this was the means of God of gaining an ultimate victory over sin, death, Satan, and the world. And through the cross, God loves, uh, his love for mankind is decisively uh, demonstrated and confirmed. And it's also at the cross, not only is his love demonstrated, this love that we proclaim throughout the world, but his justice is also safeguarded. His perfect justice is on display as the sins of the world are placed on God the Son, where they are fully paid for through his death on the cross. Now, of course, the world looks at this, and they, the, the world calls this foolish. It was true, especially in the Greek and Roman world and the Jewish world. It was uh, uh, foolishness to the Greeks. It was considered a stumbling block for the Jews that their Messiah would die on a tree, which they understood meant that the person was not just simply um, receiving a death sentence, but they were under an eternal curse of God. This is the foolishness of God. And so the apostle continues his theme to show that God shows up the supposed wisdom in the world by another display of foolishness. And this display of foolishness is seen in the kind of people God calls to himself and uses as his instruments to spread the kingdom of God to the ends of the earth. In verse 26, Paul just simply puts it this way. For consider your calling, brothers. 
Uh, and when he's talking about calling here, he's, he's, he's saying, consider when the Lord came to you and, and drew you to himself. Consider that time when you received Christ, when you were converted. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. When the Corinthians received Christ, they, they were not part of the upper crust of society. Um, when they received Christ, uh, not many of them were, were wealthy. Not many of them had influential positions. Not many of them had t- you know, academic titles and, um, next to their names. Not many of them were the influencers of society. These were not you know, great athletes that were receiving Christ. These were ordinary, common individuals. And in fact, in this, when he talks about, I mean, he uses this language as pretty strong when he, he describes them as low, verse 28, low and despised in the world. This probably means that many of those who received Christ in the Corinthian church were actually slaves. They were on the very bottom of society. And, and so, you know, you can imagine Paul's thinking through the membership roster at the church in Corinth. He's like, no, no. There may have been some exceptions to this, of course. There, there probably were a few um, high-standing individuals. It wasn't exclusive. Um, but these were the exception, not the rule, is, is what the apostle is declaring. And it's important to see that this is actually part of God's design. These are people that he has, in his sovereign wisdom, called to himself. Well, why? Verse 27, God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak to shame the strong. Jesus reflects on this principle back in Matthew when he, and he says this, Matthew eleven twenty five. Jesus says, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things, that is the truths that he is proclaiming to the people. You've hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. I was not talking that literally just about, you know, the the five to ten-year-olds. He's talking about those who in the world's eyes are like children whether they're uneducated or they're uh, just um, at the lowest realm, uh, uh, at the lowest rung of of the class structure. Maybe they're not well-educated. But he thanks the Lord that this is part of his design um, in how uh, the kingdom is being built. Why? Because, as I read earlier, God is opposed to the proud. He opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. And so the gospel is designed in such a way that a person must recognize their need. They have to admit that they don't have it all together. They have to recognize that morally they are sinners, that they have failed every day. And they need to recognize their need for the forgiveness their need for the atonement, their need for the peace with God that can only come through faith in the Son of God, in Jesus Christ our Lord. 
And by implication, uh, these are the kinds of people that God loves to use in ministry and in service to bring the good news of the kingdom of God to the fallen, to this fallen world. These are the, the people God loves to use for his, as his instruments. And in doing so, very often, he shames the elites of society as they see the transformed lives of those who are named as followers of Jesus Christ. This theme of God using what the world considers nothing special, ordinary, even weak, for great good is a recurring theme throughout the scriptures. And I just wanted to run through some of these examples, um, either of people who are, you know, not the people you would expect God to use, or where God, he creates the handicap. He creates the weakness in terms of the call that he places upon um, certain key individuals. Well, let's just start with Noah. God puts Noah in a very vulnerable situation. He comes to Noah and he says, I'm going to do something great through you. I'm going to use you in a great way. And you might think, here's Noah, well, political reform, societal reform, maybe, you know, this great reformation and revival. No, that's that's not what God calls him to do. God calls Noah to build a boat. A big boat, an ark. And you can only imagine, you know, their version of the late night comedians, what they would do with Noah and his boat. Oh, what's the weather today? Still no rain, as they show Noah building uh, the ark in the background. Or consider Abraham and Sarah. You might think of Abraham and Sarah. This was a second-career couple, okay? Um, They're old um, by even the standards of their time. When God calls to Abraham, he's age 75, and he says, I'm going to use you in a powerful way. Through you are going to come nations and kings, and and here's what I want you to do. I want you to to, um, uh, gather your household, and you're going to travel to a land uh, that you've... And you're going to live there as aliens and strangers, a land you probably have never been to before. Now, this is um, stunning, um, given that Abraham and Sarah, uh, first of all, we learned in the book of Joshua that their family background, these were not believers as we think of believers. These were pagans, and and the the thought is that, that Abraham came from a family of moon worshipers. And so God calls Abraham, he's 75, and even when he's wandering through the land of Canaan, you know, you can imagine the peoples in the cities of the plain, you know, they give almost no thought to these, you know, this group of marauders who are living out in the wilderness in tents. They, they were, in some sense, nobodies. And God used them, indeed, to bring about kingdoms and kings, and ultimately through whom the Messiah himself would come. Or consider Gideon, you know, one of the judges of Israel. If you know Gideon, Gideon struggles with courage. (laughs) Uh, He he struggles, um, in in some sense, to trust the Lord. And so what does God do for Gideon? He says, Gideon, I want you to round up an army. I want you to lead the Israelites into battle against the horde of the Midianites. 
The Midianites, you know, they came in on these camels. Um, The Israelites didn't have anything like that. And so Gideon, he goes to work. He gathers 22,000 men. Now, in comparison to something, you know, over 100,000 Midianites, it's it's not a great number, but it's, it's substantial, right? But God says, no, Gideon, that's too many. I want it to be clear that you did not gain salvation by your own hand. So I'm going to weed out some of the men. And when God is done weeding out uh, some of the men, there are only 300 left. But through that 300, God granted the victory. Or consider David. You know, we think of King David, mighty, uh, a mighty warrior, mighty king. But consider that when Samuel was sent to the family of Jesse to anoint a new king, Jesse had eight sons. Guess which number David was? He was number eight. And, and so sure that Jesse, you know, didn't need David, um, Jesse just left David out in the hills with the sheep as the prophet was coming to anoint a new king of Israel. Surely it was, you know, one of the older um, sons. David, no chance. And yet this is the one that God chose to be the next king of Israel. And even before David, you know, um, he's going to have to fight through this idea. Who am I? I'm the youngest of all my sons, of all my brothers. Um, And then the Lord lays it on his heart to fight this this champion of Gath, this Philistine uh, warrior by the name of Goliath, a giant. Um, And David, how does he do this? Is he clothed in the, the, the latest armor? Is he trained for battle? No, not at all. He goes without armor. He just has, you know, a a sling and five smooth stones as he goes into battle against this hardened uh, warrior. But God grants him the victory. Or think about the disciples that Jesus chose. I I love John MacArthur. He, He loves to describe the disciples as painfully ordinary. And indeed they were. Uh, these were fishermen. And not just any fishermen, but they're from the hills of Galilee. Okay, so they're uneducated. They're, they're unsophisticated uh, in terms of the standards of the culture, even among Jewish um, high standards. He had a tax collector. He had zealot, uh, a, a zealot. I mean, he had just very ordinary um, persons, probably the most accomplished of the disciples was a man named Judas. And nevertheless, it was these, it would be these disciples that Jesus would commission. And here's the commission. Here's what I want you to do. I want you to go forth into the world. I want you to go into uh, places uh, uh, where you may not speak the language. I want you to go to new tribes and new nations. And here's, and I want you to establish a worldwide kingdom. Oh, Jesus, this sounds great. How do we do this? Well, you're going to preach. <laughs> you're going to preach a message. You're going to baptize with water. And you're going to use a, a, a little bread and a little wine to build my kingdom. What? That's it? That's the plan? How is this going to happen? 
And through it all, the, the answer is, is because what Jesus tells his disciples, and I will be with you. I will be with you to the end of the age. It's what, G, it's what the Lord tells Joshua. Wherever you, do not be afraid. Do not be terrified. Do not be dismayed. For I, the Lord your God, will be what? I will be with you wherever you go. And so the secret of the sauce here, why God can use ordinary people, is because ultimately the battle belongs to whom? It belongs to the Lord. It's such a simple truth, and we so easily and quickly forget it. Or even our Apostle Paul, who wrote First and Second Corinthians, he, you recall that he has this thorn in the flesh. He, he has this weakness. Um, it, it sounds like a chronic weakness that he comes to the Lord with. Three, on three occasions, he says, I, I went to the Lord. I just poured my heart to the Lord. Lord, please take away this weakness. You know, make me strong is a sense what he's um, praying to the Lord. In 2 Corinthians, we read the Lord's response to the apostle. He says, my grace, that is the Lord saying, my strength is sufficient for you. For my power is made perfect in what? Weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly about my weaknesses so that Christ's power may rest on me. That encourages me. And it needs to encourage all of us. So what does this mean for us? Well, one, if you are weak and imperfect, you are a candidate to be used by God. You're a candidate for ministry. You're a candidate to be a kingdom builder. You're a candidate to be used by God in a great way. See, the Lord loves to use ordinary, imperfect people to achieve his purposes. He uses imperfect people to communicate the good news of Christ crucified and raised from the dead. He uses painfully ordinary people to disciple the nations. And this is an encouragement to everyone who feels themselves to be weak or too inadequate for the job God has put in front of us. And he does it this way by design. He makes us weak. Why? In part, so that we will trust in him. He doesn't want us to trust in our own resources, in our own strengths, in our own abilities. He wants us to trust in him and in his promises. And he wants to put us in situations where if there is, in, if there is real fruit, that comes, if there's real blessing that results, who gets the glory? Who gets the glory? God gets the glory. And so this leads into a second truth. Not only are you a candidate to be used by God, but secondly, there is no room for boasting. There's no room for pride. There's no room for us taking credit for however the Lord decides to use us. Verse 29, Paul makes this explicit, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. He uses weak, flawed people by design so that he gets the glory. Or let me just put it another way. There is a paradox in how Christ works in us and through us. 
He has not chosen us because of worldly power or influence, but to show forth Jesus Christ through us. Okay? In other words, he, he doesn't want us, he doesn't want people to see what we're doing and say, wow, that's a really gifted person. What he wants people to do is he wants people to see us and say, wow, there's something about them that is different, that is not accounted by who they are, but because of their relationship in and through Jesus Christ. And this serves as a great witness This is a liberating word. It means we don't have to have it all together to be used by God. Now, of course, we need to be growing, okay? We we need to be pursuing full maturity and holiness. We don't want to grow lax. But it is okay to be less, far less than perfect. Perfectionism will kill us. It's okay to have flaws. We don't have to have the answer to every question. And we should be able to admit that. And so today, the message just simply boils down to this critical truth that God loves to use ordinary, weak, imperfect people to accomplish his purposes. Would you bow your heads with me? Our Father, you've taught us how to pray. And you've promised to give us those things that we can ask for in the name of Christ. And so, Lord, we pray today that you would fill us with your spirit. And that as you lay um, a, a calling on our hearts to reach out to others, to bring the message of good news to those who lack hope, to minister to those who are uh, poor or needy, Lord, we pray that our trust would be in you. Our trust would be in Christ, knowing that you are with us and that you will act in us and through us. Lord, fulfill the desires of our hearts as you see best and grant us in prayer and meditation in every experience of life to know you more, to love and to serve you better through Jesus, whom you have sent for our redemption. Amen.